Coming up this hour, how is the church going to be different post-pandemic? And then we're joined by Rich Schmidt, the lead Bible instructor for the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us on a brisk but sunny Thursday afternoon. Uh, normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but as we've been saying all week, Ian is out this week. He will be back. He's enjoying some rest and some uh, relaxation, hopefully, with his family. And uh, Ian will be back on Monday. Uh, we've got some great guests, bunch of guests lined up this uh, today, including next segment. We'll be joined for a couple segments by Rich Schmidt. Uh, not only is he the lead Bible instructor at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry out in Redding, California, but uh, on a personal note, Rich is uh, somebody who played a huge role in my life. He was my youth pastor growing up in New Jersey, uh, helped do my wedding, just somebody who I spent a lot of time and was very uh, formational in my life. And now his life has taken just a crazy turn to take him from kind of a small traditional evangelical church in New Jersey out to this kind of huge Pentecostal charismatic uh, organ, uh, church organization out in Bethel, uh, out in Redding, California. And so very excited to talk to Rich on a personal level, but also just wrestling with uh, what do we make of the Pentecostal and the charismatic church? I think Rich has a lot to say to that as somebody who has, again, trained and raised uh, in a more traditional evangelical conservative church and now out there. So I'm very excited to talk to Rich. That's going to be up in the next segment. And then we're going to be joined by KJ Johnson from the C.S. Lewis Institute. And then finally, later today, we're going to have Lewis Dooley, author of Prison Saved My Life and the director for Set Free Ministries, talking prison ministry with Lewis. So a very busy show today and a uh, lot to look forward to. If you uh, miss any of it, couple different places you can find it on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. Uh, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, online, 1160hope.com. And as always, you can get our podcast. It's the best way to catch up with things. Grab the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, we're really grateful for those of you who listen to the podcast. Well, uh, one of the things Ian and I have been talking a lot about over the last, gosh, now we're at six, seven months of the coronavirus pandemic is uh, how is the church going to look different? We all know it's going to be different. Uh, the same way schools are different, uh, the same way restaurant, everything about our culture is different. There's no quote unquote normal anymore. Really, the question is, what is the new normal? And with that in mind, as some churches are reopening, some are reopening very slowly, others not reopened at all in our area. And as uh, numbers go up and down and all sorts of stuff going on right now, uh, the question is, going forward, when things are a little more normal, what can we expect? And, and two very different articles about two very different aspects of church I found interesting and I quite frankly think are a little uh, worrisome and we need to wrestle with. The first is out of the Christian Post. It's titled this, Pandemic Could Result in Loss of Faith in the Next Generation, Barna Researchers Say. Let me just uh, kind of get us into this a little bit. The coronavirus pandemic could accelerate a loss of faith among the next generation unless churches find ways to better disciple young churchgoers and keep them connected, senior researchers at the Barna Group said. 
Dave Kinneman, president of Barna, and Mark Matlock, director of Insights, cited earlier research highlighting how a majority of young people who grew up in the church will either walk away from their faith or from the church when they become young adults. And they both believe that the pandemic will make this crisis of faith even worse unless steps are taken to staunch its impact. Uh, he goes on to say this. Kinneman says this. I think it will. I uh, Speaking of the pandemic, I actually think we're going to see an increasing number of people who've lost connectedness with their faith community and with their usual rhythms and practices. We're going to actually see an increasing number in the years to come. And the long-term impact is even more fallout from that. And so, uh, especially for parents, for pastors, for church leaders, thinking what's what's one of the things we have to have on our minds as we process uh, and we continue to make our way out of the COVID-19 pandemic? And the, the answer is uh, uh, we need to be careful, especially for that younger generation that many people, many researchers were already saying uh, is going to uh, have some issues remaining in the church. And now you add on top of that, this pandemic, uh, and there's some real red flags, at least some yellow flags that I think we need to think through. And then secondly, at Religion News, Jonathan Merritt uh, wrote a long article that we'll put up on our Facebook page called, How Will the Post-Pandemic Church Pay the Bills? The pandemic may accelerate a long-term decline in congregational giving and force churches to develop new sources of revenue to strive. Merritt writes this, The conversation among church leaders is how will COVID-19 change how we worship and gather our congregations? There's another question looming uh, for the post-pandemic world. How will they keep the lights on? According again to a study by Barna, 65% of American churches have seen a decrease in contributions during the pandemic. A staggering one in five churches may be forced to close their doors in the next 18 months, the study found. It's a reckoning that has been anticipated for decades As church attendance has slowly waned and Americans have steadily decreased the proportion of their charity designated to churches. 30 years ago, about 50% of all charitable donations were sent to houses of worship. But by the time the coronavirus struck, that number shrunk to 30%. Though giving to other sectors was up, donations to religious institutions dropped by a whopping $3 billion. Uh, Mark DeMass, uh, pastor of Mosaic Church in Arkansas, he's been watching these trends and he wrote in his 2019 book, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics. He says, he said, tithes and offerings were no longer enough to provide for the needs of most congregations. The pandemic, he told me recently, this is Merritt talking, has only accelerated the inevitable. And so the question becomes, what are churches going to do uh, and the article is so much longer. It's so long. Go ahead and read it at our Facebook page. But really, the question is, uh, what are churches going to do to engage their people, to engage the next generation? And on a very practical side, how are churches going to think creatively if a merit is right here that tithes and offerings has been declining and now it's only going to decline more quickly because of the coronavirus pandemic. I think these are two interesting topics that I think pastors, church leaders, elders, whatever else are really going to need to wrestle with in the coming months. Well, coming up next, excited to be joined by Rich Schmidt, uh, lead uh, teacher at the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. Rich is going to join us for the next two segments here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Thursday afternoon. As we've been saying all week, my co-host Ian Simpkins is out of town for the week, enjoying some rest and relaxation with his family. He'll be back with us on Monday. 
And uh, one of the things we've been trying to do all week with Ian Gunn is to have in as many uh, pastors, ministry leaders. We had a college president on, authors, all sorts of people uh, for you to get to know and for you to listen to. And with that in mind, I am absolutely thrilled uh, to be joined by the lead Bible instructor for the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, Rich Schmidt. Uh, and before I bring Rich on, I will tell you that not only was that Rich's claim to fame now, but he was my youth pastor uh, back in a small church in New Jersey growing up. So, Rich, this is a lot of fun for me. Thanks for coming on all the way from California, my friend. Oh, this is amazing. I, I, I can't believe you found me somehow on the <laughs> worldwide interweb. But um, yeah, I'm thrilled to be able to do this. This is awesome. Thanks so much. This- this is a lot of fun. And uh, I did find you on Facebook. And then for some reason, you checked Facebook Messenger. So there we go. <laughs> which, which, which we all know does not happen very often. So no, it, 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 it was, must have been a God thing. Exactly. So before we get into what you're doing now, and I've got all sorts of uh, things I want to talk to you about, I'd love to go backwards because you and I, like I said, I was in your youth ministry 25 years ago. Let's just date us both here, yeah, <laughs> how old yeah. we are. Uh, back in a small church in northern New Jersey, outside of New York City. Now you are out. And it was a, a Christian Missionary Alliance, pretty traditional conservative evangelical church. And now you're a teacher out at Bethel in California. I would just love to know kind of the Reader's Digest version. I'm sure you could speak on this for hours, but take yeah. us from that church to there. What's the God story? What's the story that uh, got you to where you are today? Well, yeah, I, I will do that. I, I'm going to just uh, throw this out there, though. I can't, I, I can't help but remember uh, a, a little ninth grade boy uh, on a camping trip. <laughs> as, as we were praying, playing capture the flag in the middle of nowhere, in the woods, in the dark, in the middle of the night. And and somehow this little boy thought he was protecting my wife, but I actually think he was trying to make sure he was staying as close to an adult as possible. So I'm not I don't know who you're any, talking about. <laughs> not going to use any names, um, but there you go. Oh, that's funny. Um, <laughs> Thanks for joining so, us today. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, so yeah. How did I get here? So, um, yeah, I pastored in, in two different churches in New Jersey. So for 16 years, and as you said, it was a Christian and missionary Alliance church, both of them. And, um, I, I guess the easiest way for me to, to summarize this is, is this way. Um, I, I would read in my Bible, uh, things that Jesus did, things that the disciples did, things that other people did. And then I would look at my Christian experience, and there was a massive gap between mm-hmm. those two. And it, it frustrated me, and it discouraged me, because, um, you know, I just, I would read the words of Jesus saying, uh, we're supposed to do these things. Like, over and over, Jesus would use expressions like, uh, you know, heal the sick, uh, cast out demons, cleanse the lepers, um, you know, pre- proclaim the kingdom of God, like this language. And I looked at my ministry and I was like, well, okay, we're definitely doing the preach the preach the gospel part, mm-hmm. but those other parts I, I just didn't understand and they confused me. And so this kind of put me on put put, put me on a journey um of 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 reading, of searching, of listening to other people to try to find out, you know, is is there more than what my experience has been? And um, you know, I, I started finding some other things and some other uh uh, people who who were experiencing God in different ways than I was experiencing Him, and uh, again, yeah, it is it is about an hour long story. <laughs> yeah, um, but God God radically picked up uh, me and my family uh, from our little church plant in New Jersey, 
and and he brought us all the way out here to California. And uh, I started attending this ministry school, and, and we call it that. It's a ministry school. It's it's not a Bible college. It's not a seminary. We we are trying to train people for practical hands on ministry, and so uh, we actually we tr- we pray for people. Um, we practice all the things that we talk about. And so I find myself doing this and, you know, I'd like to tell you that the story was, was just uh, from glory to glory. And I just rolled in here and all of a sudden they saw how amazing I was and made me a pastor. Uh, But that's not how it worked. Um, I was actually, uh, I couldn't find a job in this town and I ended up working as a janitor. Uh, So for eight years, I was a janitor at Bethel church, uh, most educated janitor they've ever had. (laughs) Um, And, uh, and during that time, I started uh, kind of teaching some classes on the side. And again, this is a, a super long, and, and it's a God story because God yeah. worked it out. But um, through through some crazy circumstances, uh, the, the head of the school, uh, Chris Vallotton, basically called me into his office and says, we want to hire you. Are you interested? And I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because, I am. <laughs> he goes, do you need to go talk to your wife about this? I said, bro, I've been we've been talking about this for eight years. Like we're, mm. we're so good with this opportunity. Yeah. So um, yeah. So that was probably maybe five years ago. And so, you know, now I get to, I get to do what I love. I get to study the Bible. I get to teach students the Bible um, and we get to just go after whatever we feel like we think the Bible's saying, we go after it and, and try to press into that stuff. So that's awesome. I, that's I hope that's story. the short version, but there oh, you go. Yeah. That's, that's an excellent story. So let's just dive in here. As I told you uh, when I gave you a call, one of the things Ian and I like to do on the show here is bring on people, you know, from different streams than maybe we're involved in. We've had, you know, Mark Galley talking about Catholicism and all this kinds of stuff in the last couple Beautiful. of weeks or years. Uh, so cards on the table, right? Like, you know how I grew up and, and it was always kind of thought, I was always kind of under the impression the charismatic Pentecostal church, high on Holy Spirit, really low on the Bible. And us traditional right. evangelicals were kind of the opposite, right? High on the Bible, low right. on the Holy Spirit. Help us understand from your perspective, uh, I'd assume you think that's an incorrect assessment. Help us understand why that's an incorrect yeah. assessment. Yeah. So so I think it's uh, it's fair to say that's the stereotype mm-hmm. because because there's plenty of evangelicals, you know, our friends who say, no, I experience the Holy Spirit. And, and there are plenty of uh, charismatic and Pentecostals who say, no, 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 I read my Bible every day. Mm-hmm. But the stereotype is absolutely true. And uh, I feel like uh, in some ways, uh, maybe teachers, maybe it's just assumptions um, that we had to emphasize one or the other. And I've just come to the conclusion that, that is absolutely false. Mm-hmm. Um, God, God has given us uh, the scriptures, which are powerful. They're profound. Um, we should base our lives off the scriptures. Uh, but we also have this incredible thing that the God of the universe in some way that none of us can understand, um, he lives inside of us <laughs> and, and he speaks and he moves and, and he empowers us. And so um, I, my belief is that these are, are two of the, just the greatest resources that are uh, available to Christians. And we need to be, again, not that we use the Holy Spirit, that's not what I'm suggesting, but yes. we need to be implementing um, what has been given to us, what's available to us for the ministry of other people. Um, 
So that, that's how I look at it, if that makes that's sense. Good. Oh, it totally makes sense. That's really helpful. Uh, I was perusing your website. I'd encourage people to go to richschmidt.org. I think I, it's .org, right? Richschmidt.org. Uh, and on there, you describe it in kind of your vision for who you are and your ministry. You describe yourself as a bridge, that God has called you to be a bridge between these kind of two worlds, that kind of how you grew up and where you were ministering before and where right. you are now. Could you talk about that imagery a little bit as to how yeah. you see yourself as a bridge? Yeah. So, so it was crazy. I was, before any of this uh, teaching stuff opened up, I was walking and uh, our town is is right on the Sacramento River. And we have a beautiful walking trail called the, the, the River Trail. And so you can walk beside the river and it's beautiful. And um, we have a bridge that goes across the river. And there are no there are no supports under the bridge, no pillars, no pylons, nothing like that. Um, it's just anchored by cables on either side, and it's just a walking bridge. You know, people can walk or bike or whatever. Um, and uh, you know, I was praying and trying to say, God, what are you doing with my life? Because I'm a janitor, and this is not <laughs> what I not what I went to school for seven years to do. And um, and I was reading the plaque and it talked about this bridge and the engineering and how they, they built it. And literally not an audible voice, but just in my spirit, I heard God say, that's you. Mm. And I was like, what? And so I read more clearly and what it describes again, I'm no engineer, but what it describes is how deep they had to drill these cables into the, the rock, the bedrock, mm-hmm. and anchor it deep on one side. They had to do the same thing deeply on the other side in order to carry the weight of this entire span uh, ac- across this beautiful river. And so it, it began to dawn on me that, you know, I grew up as an ev- a conservative evangelical. Um, I, I was trained as a conservative evangelical. I taught in, I led in churches that were evangelical churches. So I understood that side. But now God was actually putting me in a training process where I was learning this other side, which was all new to me and I was completely unfamiliar with. And so uh, that's kind of what this thing is. And I I see beauty and wonder on both sides of this uh, of this uh, thing. Yeah. That's great, man. That's why one one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is just because so often it's almost like we treat these two sides as different teams, right? We're on different teams. Right, we're not on the same. Right. And I wanted to kind of try to get at that. Well, I mean, I'm thrilled to have my old friend Rich Schmidt joining us uh, from out at Bethel, the lead Bible instructor out there at Bethel. And Rich is kind enough to join us again for another segment. Going to stay with us here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Uh, my name is Brian Fromm, joined normally by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out for the week. will join us again on Monday. He'll be back with us on Monday. Uh, I'm thrilled to continue to be joined for a second segment here all the way from Redding, California. Uh, Rich Schmidt, he, uh, Rich is the lead Bible instructor for the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. Uh, Rich is also my old youth pastor 25 years ago. Man, we're old. 25 years ago uh, at a small church in northern New Jersey. So uh, Rich helped with my wedding. We go we go way back. In fact, Rich, you might not know this. Maybe you do remember this. The first wedding I ever attended in my entire life was your wedding. I don't know if you know that. Well, I do remember that. I yeah. do remember. Crazy. So, 
First wow. wedding ever. So if people want, I, I think you gave such great uh, insight into kind of traditional evangelicalism, but also now you're kind of in this Pentecostal charismatic stream right now. Uh, and, and if anyone missed it, please go to our podcast and listen. But you also do just a lot of teaching at the school. And so I want to dive into a couple of things that you're teaching because I know that's where your passion is at. Sure. Uh, and let's just dump right, jump right into the deep end. You teach a course on end times, on end times eschatology. Uh, which is something people have obviously been interested in since Jesus ascended into heaven. Uh, so how do you answer the age-old question about are we in the midst of the end times? Should we expect Jesus to be returning soon? Kind of what's your, uh, what's kind of your angle on end times eschatology? So, so the short answer is no. There you go. <laughs> <Good>. I don't. <laughs> um, uh, the, the long answer, uh, wow, how, that, thank you, in two minutes or less. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the beauty so, of radio. <laughs> um, I, I feel like uh, the church uh, has, has been misinformed and we've misread uh, certain passages of Scripture. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for, for example, let me say this. Uh, Matthew 24, everybody uh, views as the signs of the end times. In fact, most of our Bibles, the heading over Matthew 24 is the signs of the end. And uh, in that passage, Jesus is talking to his disciples about the destruction of the temple, which would happen, uh, you know, 40 years later in 70 AD. And the disciples ask him, you know, a couple of questions, you know, when is this going to happen? What are the signs going to lead up to it? And then they ask this one, uh, and what about the end of the age? And so when we as modern readers hear that, we just automatically go, we go screaming to end times. What, what's fascinating to me is when you read the parallel passages in Mark 13 and Luke 21, neither Mark nor Luke mention anything about the end times. All they talk about is the destruction of the temple. And so somehow the church has locked into Matthew's version, and we've completely ignored Mark and Luke's versions, at least portions of the church. Yeah. And uh, you know what I like to say is you know two-thirds of the gospel accounts uh, don't mention the end times. They're only talking about the destruction of the temple. So uh, for me, when, when we talk about these signs of the end that everybody goes out there, wars and famines and earthquakes and all these things, um, they're actually biblically not not signs of the end times, they're signs of the times leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Mm -hmm. And so let me rephrase it this way. Um, when the Bible frequently, not always, but frequently, when the Bible talks about the end times, it's not talking about our modern day end times. It's talking about the end of the old covenant. It's talking mm. about the end of the world as the Jews knew it. And you just have to imagine yourself like your whole life as a Jewish person, you, you'd have gone to the temple, all the festivals, you, you'd have been to the sacrifices and all the laws and all the rules. And, and in a flash in 70 AD, that all came crashing down. And for 2000 years and counting, it's never come back. And so it was the end of an age. It was the end of their age. It was yeah. the end of their world. And so we've stepped into this incredible new covenant reality um, that is just profound and beautiful. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, that's good, man. That's good. So what is the, in your mind, what's the danger for, you know, I, I know a lot of people who, who are very focused, right? On when is Jesus coming back? When are we going to heaven? When is this? And, and, what would you what would you caution that person? What's the danger in always kind of thinking in those terms? Well, well, for starters, uh, so far, everyone who has predicted when Jesus will come back has been wrong. So <laughs> the track record's bad. Okay, <laughs> um, yes. and you know Jesus. You know, again, there's some language in Matthew 24 about no one knows the day or hour, and we could mm -hmm. debate what that means. But but 
it does feel like we don't know. <laughs> yeah, it feels like yeah. we don't know. And so I, I just steer clear of uh, trying to announce this because, you know, I, I go on the websites and I, I listen to some of these people with all these predictions and all this, but you go back 10, 20 years, there was a whole nother group of people making predictions. You go 10, 20 years before that, they were making predictions and it kind of, you just realize we don't know, do we? <laughs> we yeah. don't know when Jesus come back. And so I, I think the important thing is not when. I think the important thing is, are you doing what you've been called to do? Good. Um, if you're about the work, if you're about the ministry, that's what you want. When Jesus shows up, he's going to wants to look you in the eye and say, well done. Uh, that's what I'm going after is that he gives me the well done, whether I knew when he come back or, or, or not. Uh, that's my objective. That's a great word, man. So another one of your classes, as I said, I was perusing your website yeah. that you teach is called Revival Apologetics. And that just the title caught my caught my eye. Talk to me about what's just the content of that course. What are you getting at in that course? Yeah. So um, so in that class, um, you know, when, when many people. OK, so I come out of an evangelical background. I'm assuming you're you know, evangelical background and right. many of our listeners. And when you when when we look at this other wing of the church, these charismatics and Pentecostals, oftentimes we will see uh, behaviors. Um, we call them manifestations um, that that confuse us, that scare us, mm -hmm. uh, that offend us. And so we see things, we see people laugh or we see people fall over or we see people shake. And again, like I said, that was never a part of my church experience. Right. And so I, I can stand in evangelical conservative shoes and say, I don't get this. Okay. <laughs> and so what we, what we started doing was just looking through the scriptures to see, you know, when God shows up, when an angel shows up, when there's some sort of a supernatural thing going on what happens uh, to, to people. And, and it's profound from, from Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, John, uh, Paul. Um, they all had profound encounters and all kinds of experiences happened to them, um, which, which just were shocking to me. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we began to do is we began to, um, you know, to just look through the scripture and say, okay, let's, let's actually pay attention what what is being said and um uh you know i like to i like to view uh, the bible as our guidebook to these mm -hmm. supernatural experiences it mm -hmm. it tells us very clearly the things that are out of bounds but it also reveals to us um these are different ways that god has interacted with people throughout the ages yeah. and so we sh we might not want to be shocked if we see some of those things today Absolutely. Well, uh, you said something else. I was watching a YouTube clip of yours and yeah. you said you were talking about, I might get this a little bit wrong, so I'll try not to put words in your mouth, but you were basically talking about when you're in conversation with others, even debate, you know, with other people. Yeah. And you said that something that, that really struck me last night. You said, as I was watching it, you said something to the effect of it's really important that the other person knows that you love them. Yeah. And and that is so different, quite frankly, than the culture we're living in right now. Yeah. And I, I wanted to give you a chance to speak to that because I personally believe that 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 one line there is so transformational and so countercultural, but must be part of the church. So can yeah. you speak to that uh, about how people who we even were disagreeing with need to know that we love them? Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Thanks. Thanks for watching. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, so, you know, in our school, we uh, we have people from all different backgrounds and um, 
and we leave our school and we go back to to not just uh, different churches in the U.S., but all over the world and and different experiences, different streams. And so inevitably, um, uh, we're going to get into discussions which could easily turn into debates. And um, I just think it's vitally important. You know, Jesus said the one most important thing, uh, you know, they'll know that you're Christians by your love. Mm -hmm. And if we get so caught up in, in I have to be right and I've got to prove you why I'm right and we miss the fact of loving somebody, uh, we've just missed the point, I think, from Jesus's perspective. And so uh, all the topics that I talk, I love talking about them. I'm passionate about them. If you want to, man, I will dive in. But, <laughs> but at the end of the day, um, if you don't feel in my heart a, a genuine love for you as a person, that I care for you, that I care more about you than about I have to be right and I have to prove my point, then I think I've failed. And I think I've missed out on this. And so that's what I try to teach our students is, you know, you get into these discussions, you know, sometimes it may just be better to just back out of that debate because you realize this is not going to end well. And I'm not going to be com communicating the love in my heart that I have for this person. Uh, same way when we pray for people. I mean, you're going to hear about it. You know, we, we pray for healing because we believe it's in the Bible. And so we do that. But, but guess what? Not everybody gets healed when we pray for them. So we're still trying to work this out. But again, at the end of that prayer time, that person should know they're not a statistic. Uh, it's not a it's not a tick mark on my on my belt mm -hmm. whether I succeeded or not. They should know. Wow, that guy that guy really cared for me. Uh, he hugged me. He cried with me. Yeah. Uh, he cared about where I was at. But those are the things I think that are important. Oh, it's such a great word to end on, Rich. Uh, like I told you off air, I'm like, we're not we're not going to get to everything. I, I, we'll have to do this mm -hmm. again sometime. Where can people find you if they're like, man, I want to hear more of this guy. I want to read his stuff, whatever else. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, great. Thank you. So, um, so we just got our website up, and it is, as you said, richschmidt.org. Uh, we've been doing a bunch of stuff on Instagram. I got some people helping me. So that's uh, Rich Schmidt, I think, with an underscore after it. And uh, you can find us on Facebook. I think it also is richschmidt.org. Um, so, yeah, we're just trying to get some of these messages out there because yeah. we believe that they're, they're important. Great, man. Hey, you've always been not just a good friend. You played a huge role in my life. So this has been really awesome. fun to have you on. Please tell Danielle I said hi and yeah. uh, enjoy California as it gets cold out here in Chicago. So yeah. thanks so much, man. This has been a lot Thank of fun. You. Thank you. for doing Thanks this. so much. Absolutely. Hey, you're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on a beautiful Thursday afternoon. As we've been saying over the course of the week with my co-host Ian Simpkins uh, out of town uh, and, and not on the show for a couple of days, what we've been trying to do is bring in as many guests, new guests, uh, people who've been on the show, people we like to call friends of the show uh, back on and and one of those friends of the show, I think this is your third time on, if I'm not mistaken, is KJ Johnson. KJ is the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute here in Chicago. KJ, thanks so much for joining us again, man. Hey, it's good to be back. I lost track of how many times it's, uh, it's been, so we'll call it three. Third time's a charm. I think that's right. I think that's right. For those people who either, you know, it's been a while, so maybe they don't remember or they've never heard you before. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, however you see fit? Yeah, well, it's good to be back. I've um, been on a few times. We've chatted about yep. my uh, my role with the C.S. Lewis Institute. I've I've been with the institute um, in a number of capacities for about a decade, but I've been officially the director here for seven years. Um, we the name C.S. Lewis throws everybody off. So the simple way of putting it is, we're a discipleship ministry. Our motto mm -hmm. is discipleship of the heart and mind, which is 
Lewis all the way. Yeah. Uh, we hold Lewis up as an example of what it would be, what it would mean to be a disciple in today's world, somebody fully engaged in heart and mind. And we were started in the 1970s by a guy who knew Lewis, and he just thought Lewis was a guy who got it right uh, in his life, not necessarily his theology and things like that. And yeah. that's all we try to do is emulate Lewis as he is trying to point people to the work and person of Jesus Christ. That's, uh, that's kind of a, a bare bones explanation. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm curious, as a discipleship organization, uh, how have you guys traditionally done that? So what do we, we always break everything up now, right? Pre-COVID and post-COVID. How were you, <laughs> how do you guys do that pre-COVID? What was uh, kind of the way that the C.S. Lewis Institute did that? And how has that changed since March and the onset of the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, it's kind of going to be like B.C. and A.D., isn't it? Exactly, um, exactly. <laughs> Pre-COVID, it was a utopia. No, um, yes. we, we, we prefer doing everything in person. We really feel like if you take a look at the way Jesus modeled discipleship and the way Paul did it, that, you know, there's something special about being with people in person. You know, there's something about breaking bread with folks. So we would meet in person. We have resisted the idea of going virtual to date, even though we've had mm. a lot of requests. But of course, like everybody, uh, we have done the 2020 dance, which is called pivoting. Yeah. And we have pivoted to that. And it's, it's been working well. I would say um, I'm happy with the results so far. I don't want to keep doing it this way. I, right. I long for being in person. And, and we have started actually um, uh, earlier this month, we did our first in-person meeting again, but it was a hybrid part Zoom, part meeting for those who are in, in high-risk categories, and it just wasn't didn't make sense for them to join us. Yeah, yeah. So I want to jump into more of the C.S. Lewis Institute stuff, but before we do that, I know, and we've talked about this in the past, but one of the real interesting things about you is that you did 20 years of active duty in the Marine Corps. I would just love to know, uh, A, what did you do in those 20 years? What, what did your active duty look like? But B, I want to know just how did that military, uh, how did it shape you, and how does it continue to shape who you are? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I asked that question over and over in my time in the Marine Corps, like, what am I going to do when I get in the real world? Um, and, and God had a, a perfect plan for that. Um, I started out as a helicopter pilot. So that was what they call our MOS, Military Occupational Specialty. That was my primary job throughout um, my time in the Marine Corps. But as you get promoted, um, you get into positions of uh, other authority and, and uh, other responsibilities. So I ended up becoming a weapons and tactics instructor. Uh, I did a lot of strategy and operational plans and worked at headquarters. Uh, my last job was working at a wing headquarters. I deployed to Afghanistan where I oversaw the, um, the command, command and control and air war aspects for the Helmand province. So I've done a lot of strategy, but I've also done a lot of training and curriculum kinds of things for aviation and training. And that has worked very well into my life here now in ministry. And as well, just the ethos of the Marine Corps, it's all about leadership and mentoring. It's all about, you know, um, what I'm talking about, this flesh on flesh kind of thing. You, we really build into our culture, having someone mentor you and mentoring and pouring into the people behind you. And it's, that's very, very applicable to uh, the life of the church. So I never yeah. thought of translating things that way, but it's just worked out perfectly in hindsight. Yeah, I'm curious. I've never really thought of that about this, but like uh, discipleship or evangelism or just uh, in the in the Marines, right? In the Marines, is there a hunger for God? Is there a hunger to know who Jesus is, or is it more of a uh, of a shunned topic, if you will, in the Marine Corps? 
Uh, no, there's hunger. There's, I think there's a hunger everywhere, but um, uh, there's definitely in the Marine Corps. I was involved in, uh, and this was as I started my foray into ministry, the, at the end of my 20 years, um, I sensed God changing my heart. Um, even though I continued to love passionately what I was doing in the Marine Corps, some of the zeal was, was starting to fade and my heart was moving more towards I need to do ministry. That's where God's called me. But in that transitionary phase, I was involved with a Marine discipleship ministry. And I'm telling you, it was almost sometimes like shaking a tree and guys would just fall out that hmm. looking for someone to spend time with them, walk and do, do life with them, uh, explain aspects of, of the word to them, wrestle with tough discussions. So there's the military is a cross section of society. Um, it, yeah. you, know, you get all stripes. I know we can, we can uh, stereotype the military guys, but it, Really, what you see in society, you get in a, in a microcosm in the military. So there's a lot of hunger there. They just have to wrestle with, like any government position, not using your position or authority in ways that would be unbecoming. So you just have to walk that line to make sure I'm in the personal realm here and not the professional at certain times. Yeah, yeah. I, this just hit me. This, this is a bit of a strange question, maybe. But so you were a helicopter pilot. Once you leave the Marine Corps, do you still fly helicopters? Do you miss it? Is there an opportunity to still do that? Or is that something that once you're done with that job, you never really do it again? No, I can do it. I got a lot of friends who got out and, and did it. I mean, my license is still good. I'm not current right now because I haven't kept up my uh, hours. So I would have to go and uh, get with a flight instructor just to build up my hours again. But yep. I've got friends who are instructing. Uh, I got a friend of mine who's a tour pilot, helicopter pilot in Hawaii. It's a nice gig. But uh, <laughs> I miss the people more than I miss the flying. And I'll yeah. probably fly again one day. But right now, I'm where God wants me. Gotcha. Uh, so I do want to talk in our next segment about some very specific events going on through the C.S. Lewis Institute. But I do want to just to end this segment by going, what are the aspects? Some people might not be that familiar with C.S. Lewis. You know, maybe they know some of his writings, but what are the specific aspects of C.S. Lewis himself that you kind of hinted at before you guys are trying to emulate kind of the way he lived his life? What are some of those things about C.S. Lewis? Well, he was a guy who dedicated his whole life uh, to pointing people to Jesus and helping them become more like Jesus mm -hmm. and enjoy the union we have with him through the Holy Spirit. And so um, aspects of his life, you know, all the books he wrote, he kept almost none of that money for himself. He really? created something called an agape fund and gave it all away. Um, he lived on his salary, you know, as a professor. Um, his faith cost him in his, in his work. You know, he was never given, in America we call it tenure. He was never made a full professor at Oxford. Mm -hmm. Um because he was so outspoken about his faith. Uh, he was shunned at times uh, socially by even his Christian friends for being so zealous because he crossed some of those taboo lines of, mm -hmm. of writing quote unquote theology books, which were out of his discipline. Um, so he, he did pay a price for his faith. You know, we talk about the cost of discipleship. Sometimes it's not going to be a dramatic, uh, you know, losing your life kind of thing. Oftentimes it's social status professional status, um, in this case, you know, also all the money he gave away. So he just emulated that in so many small ways. And of course, he was engaged intellectually. He didn't sacrifice um, the, the life of the mind for his faith. Absolutely. So we'd encourage you to go check out the C.S. Lewis Institute. We're excited to continue to be joined by K.J. Johnson. He is the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute here in Chicago. And, and uh, K.J. is going to stay with us. We're going to talk about some uh, very specific events, but then we're also going to talk about politics, politics and the public faith, just kind of in general. How do we live out our faith in these divided times? That's coming up next here on The Common Good. 
1160, Hope for Your Life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on a beautiful Thursday afternoon. Uh, we're thrilled to be joined by for a second segment by K.J. Johnson. K.J. is the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute here in Chicago. If you missed uh, the first segment we did with K.J., go ahead and get our podcast or hop on our Facebook page. Uh, you can find those right there. Uh, K.J.'s got great stuff to share. And also the interview we did last hour with Rich Schmidt from Bethel. Uh, Bethel School of Ministry. We would go ahead and find it there as well. Well, KJ, at the C.S. Lewis Institute, you guys have some events coming up. Uh, one of them is a virtual C.S. Lewis book club with Dr. Jerry Root. Uh, as a Wheaton grad, I'm very familiar and very uh, and love Dr. Root. I think he's fabulous. But could you tell us about the virtual book club and more so if people are interested in getting involved with it, how would they do so? Yeah, well, um, Jerry is one of our senior fellows. He's, as you know, He's mm-hmm. just phenomenal. He's great. Um, we started this over the summer, and this is the best kind of book club there is. You don't even have to read the book if you don't want, because I know <laughs> we have a lot of folks out there that um, prefer 240 characters or less. But uh, Jerry will bring these books to life. We did three mm-hmm. events over the summer, um, and we'll do three more this fall, uh, October 22nd, November 19th, and December 17th. And he's going to go through Surprise by Joy, a Preface to Paradise Lost, and Miracles. And he just unpacks the books in a way that few people can because Jerry's not only a sort of an expert in C.S. Lewis, but he's read so much of what Lewis read that he can really kind of get inside Lewis's head. Um, The former director of the Wade Center, Chris Mitchell, has uh, once told me that nobody knows Lewis quite like Jerry. So the idea Hmm. is it's it's a Zoom thing. You can jump on. And if you want to read the book ahead of time, great. If not, this actually might be a great primer to help you understand if you want to read the book afterwards. Yeah, um, and yeah. then Jerry kind of lays out a nice roadmap for you and understanding what Lewis was thinking about, where he was going, what was going on in his life at the time. And a lot of it just has this, ha, has to do with um, how you can live your Christian life from the, from these things. It's not just to, to become yeah. a bunch of nerds on Lewis. <laughs> Good. Uh, and then there's another event that you're going to be a part of, along with Daryl Bach. Uh, and fascinated. I'd love to hear more about this because it's discussing conspiracy theories, QAnon, something Ian and I have talked a lot about and kind of the mm. danger of conspiracy theories. But what's a, uh, I guess I would like to know, what's this event and why did you feel like this event was important at this time? Yeah. Now, this is an event that's being hosted by the Grow Center out of okay. Northern Seminary. Gotcha. Um, and I was invited to join uh, Dr. Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary, which, you know, if you know him, I've yeah. asked, why do you need me? Am I, <laughs> am I supposed to be the laugh track for Dr. Bach? Because he's, he's just a genius. He um, is, yes. But uh, I had been a bit outspoken myself um, because I'm concerned about the growing um, – acceptance of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. and um, it, before I forget it's on October 23rd at 12 p.m. and I can give you guys the links and you can please post do. It. But, um, we're going to discuss you know we live you've heard the term post-truth culture we live mm-hmm. in a, an increasingly post-truth culture and it's not just so much nowadays that you have your truth and I have my truth but we're just even getting to the sources where it's not even enough to say well Brian, you got your source. Now, I, I question your source of truth because you're listening to the wrong news sources. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the wrong people. You have the wrong ideologies. Nothing you can say 
uh, nothing you say could be trusted. And that really creates what a friend of mine would call this hermeneutic of suspicion. And mm. everything we do now is automatically suspect. And we're cynical, cynical to the point of, of being dangerous. And we, we are speaking completely different languages. So um, I know there's, you know, QAnon is getting a lot of, of attention right now because it's gone mm. mainstream. But mm-hmm. conspiracy theories are not, um, they don't know partisan boundaries. They, they are growing on either side of the aisle, if you will. It's like kudzu. Mm-hmm. It grows mm-hmm. all over. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm alarmed by it. I've had, um, I was blind to it up until recently when people close to me started saying some weird things. And I was like, yeah. where are you getting this? Yeah. Uh, and help people understand, because I am totally in agreement with you on the dangers of them. But there's probably people out there going, why are they dangerous? Like, you know, they're they're interesting, different way to look at things. Why why do you think conspiracy theories uh, pose a threat and are dangerous? Well, on one hand, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to be uh, promoters uh, of the truth. We're supposed to jealously guard the truth um, and we're supposed to proclaim the truth. And so uh, oftentimes these conspiracy theories, uh, they can take facts uh, that may be accurate and true and weave them together and connect the dots in ways that are maybe unhelpful. Um, you know, as a friend of mine pointed out, you know, most conspiracies are usually not as fantastical as the ones we're hearing about. I mean, look at Watergate. I yeah. mean, that was a big deal, but it, it was somebody breaking in. So uh-huh. usually not that, that, that uh, insane. But I'll give you actually a, a personal example. Uh, my mentor, Tom Terrence, he was the president of the C.S. Lewis Institute. And he's the guy that created our discipleship program in the 1960s. He was a violent uh, racist, and he mm. he um, worked with the KKK, and he was the most feared man in Alabama. And without getting too far into the story, if you want, you can pick up his book, uh, Consumed by Hate, Redeemed by Love. Um, he, he came to a very radical conversion, became friends with uh, John Perkins, wrote a book with John Perkins, mm. um, and goes on to run the Institute. But if you look at what happened, and this is something I've, I've been picking his brain on more lately, is like, how did you fall prey to this? He was prone to fall uh, to conspiracy theories and propaganda. Hmm. Now, this is an extreme case, but, you know, this leads us into these kinds of reactions. And looks what's happening on the streets of many of our cities yeah. and then the counter reactions to those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid uh, of the way it plays out violently. Yeah, absolutely. And so we're, we're two and a half weeks away from an election right now. And who knows what the aftermath of the election is going to be. Uh, what about something, obviously, we've been talking a lot about is just politics and our faith in general, like mixing of the two, how to bring them together. Do you have any thoughts um, just on how to best live out our faith in these specifically uh, politically divided times that we're living in right now? Yeah, Um well, one, don't believe conspiracy theories. <laughs> there you go, tying um, them together. Yep. There's a segue for you. Um, I think we have to think long and hard about the way we behave um, publicly. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk about um, our faith, and in the Institute, we talk about private and public faith, the way we live our faith out publicly. I think oftentimes we focus on the private aspect. And so when we engage, are we doing it in a winsome manner? Um, are we prone to alarmism? Are we prone to echo chambers? Because uh, we need to be prepared to recognize that our particular political stance can't be conflated with our, our faith. And I think far too often we're, we're inverting our citizenship and uh, we're, we're putting our, our earthly citizenship sometimes at a higher precedent than our, our heavenly citizenship. And we, we do that inadvertently. But we're also identifying our, 
politics or their faith a little too closely. And so if you have a particular position politically that I disagree with when I challenge you, it's far too easy to interpret that as a challenge to your faith, which you should take seriously. Um, the politics plays secondary to that. And I think sometimes we just get that backwards. So I would just say yeah. we need to hold our politics a little bit more lightly. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Uh, K.J. Johnson, he is the director of the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago. K.J., we're so thankful for the amount of time, uh, multiple times you've given to us. Where can people find you? Where can they find out more information about C.S. Lewis Institute? Maybe where are you on social media? Where can people find out all that information? Uh, CSLewisInstitute.org and click on Chicago. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Just look up C.S. Lewis Institute and then click on the Chicago option. Perfect. Well, see, uh, uh, KJ Johnson from the C.S. Lewis Institute. KJ, really appreciate your time again, man. I'm sure we will do this again. We'll call on you again. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for all you guys are doing. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Normally joined by Ian Simpkins, but Ian is out this week getting some uh, good family time and some good rest and relaxation and being with his family. He will be back with us on Monday. And as we've been saying all day, uh, one thing we like to do when either Ian or I are not in is to just have as many interesting guests as we possibly can. And so if you missed our discussion with Rich Schmidt or with KJ Johnson earlier today, you can find that on our podcast uh, but we're uh, super excited to bring back for the second time. He was on, I guess, like a year ago. Uh, excited to be joined by Lewis Dooley. Lewis, thanks so much for joining us again, bud. Man, thank you, Brian. Man, it's definitely an honor and a blessing to be here with you today. Oh, it's our privilege. Uh, Lewis is the author of a book called Prison Saved My Life. He's also a partner with Emmaus Worldwide. And we're going to get to the ministry uh, later in this segment or next segment. But Lewis, uh, your story is just so fascinating and you chronicle it in Prison Saved My Life. Uh, but could you talk to us about it? And I know it takes a long time to tell your story, but could you just help us understand uh, your story and how you've gotten to where you are now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I can give you a quick version. Well, you know, uh, growing up in East St. Louis, Illinois, which is a pretty poor and impoverished town, I kind of fell to um, the stuff that's there with drugs and alcohol abuse and also drug dealing, you know, which kind of led me to a life of crime. And at 19 years old, I found myself being convicted of attempted murder mm. and first we armed robbery and sentenced to life and 100 years in prison. And so that was like a, a eye opener for me because I had a lot of hopes and dreams in life and those had just been uh, done away with. And so it was my first day after my conviction in the county jail where uh, another inmate gave me a box of stuff that I didn't have. And I thought he was trying to make a move on me. So later that night, I went to go kill him. Mm-hmm. And when I rushed in his cell, him and a few other guys were having Bible study. And so that kind of <laughs> wow. stopped me in my tracks. Yeah. And then uh, he stopped reading the Bible at some point and asked me if I believed in God and told him that I didn't. I believed basically in me. And he handed me a, a Bible track and kind of looked at me as if to say, you can leave now. And so mm-hmm. that's what I did. I left, went back to my bunk, sat down, started thinking about how I had thrown my life away, my dreams, my hopes, and just really wanted to take my life. But I didn't have the means to do that. Um, and so I started really reading this Bible track. I couldn't sleep. I had a little bit of ambient light that I could read. And I was reading. It's probably one, two in the morning. 
in this dry, dark, quiet jail dorm. And I'm reading about creation, about sin, about mm-hmm. me being a sinner, but that Christ offers salvation for all and that he could give you a second chance in life. And I was like, wow, man, I really want a second chance in life. And so gave my life to Christ that night, uh, spent the next 15 and a half years in prison and all of a sudden just got out just kind of like, like that, you know, I, I really don't have a legal or any other explanation as to why they let me out. And I wasn't going to inquire about that. Cause I was just, <laughs> I was just happy that they were going to let me out. Yeah. And so that was 2009 when I got out and I had met a young lady when I was in prison through a mutual friend, we got married. That brought me up to the Carroll stream area where uh, first thing I'm trying to do is find a job and I couldn't find one kind of was like, man, you know, I just want to go back to prison because it was so much easier in there. Um, but then by God's grace, a, a job was provided. And after about a year and a half of working for, I have a bean coffee company in Wheaton, um, guy said, Hey, I let you out. And I was like, yeah, I know. Thanks God. And he's like, there's <laughs> a reason behind that. And I'm like, okay, God, what is it? And he's like, it's good. And I'm like, all right, God, I know all your gifts are good and they're from above and it's great. And he said, I let you out of prison just to send you back in. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> that was 2012. And ever since then, um, by God's grace, I've been able to go into jails and prisons in Illinois and around the country to get a chance to not only share my story, but to help people understand and learn God's word, because that is where we can learn about redemption and forgiveness, repentance, and how we can build a relationship with Jesus Christ. Mm, that's such a powerful story. So I, I want to go back to the part of the story that you said it, there's really no explanation for, but I, I'm just curious. So you're supposed to be serving two life sentences plus a hundred years. So it yep. sounds to me like three life sentences yep, uh, and they much. let you out after 15 and a half years. Like, what did they actually say? Like what, when they said, Hey, you're getting out, what was their reasoning at all? That, that, that part of your story always surprises me so much. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of uh, two parts. Like I went and saw a parole board. Every state doesn't have one like Illinois doesn't. But I was incarcerated in Missouri. So I went to the parole board and basically there were four people there. One And I was told there were going to be four people and one would be writing. One would be just looking at me. One would be running a camera and one would be talking to me. And the guy talking to me basically said two things. The first thing he said was, it doesn't seem like you're that bad a guy. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of like, what do I say to that? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, yes, sir. And then the second thing he says, it seems like you were just hanging out with the wrong crowd. And I was again, kind of baffled and dumbfounded. And I was like, yes, sir. And then he's like, all right, you'll get answer in six weeks. And then six weeks came and I saw another gentleman who I'd never seen before. And he just read off a piece of paper, my name, my inmate number and their response, which was scheduled for release in 2009. And that was pretty much it. Wow. <laughs> That must have been overwhelming. <laughs> yeah, I'm I just sure. started crying and said, thank you, Jesus, man. I could not believe it. Could not Absolutely. Believe it. And now as you go back into the prisons to do Bible studies and uh, all sorts, just to bring the good news of the gospel back into uh, into the, the correctional facilities, is that really a fertile mission field for a lack of a better way of putting it? Is there just are, are the men and women in these correctional facilities just looking for the hope? And then when you bring them, Jesus uh, kind of latching onto it. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, when you think about um, being in a situation where you're being held against your will and that may be, you know, for everybody when it's their first time, it's a big shocker, you know, being in a place where everything is different and you're sitting on top of other people that you don't know. And a lot of people in that uh, context hit the proverbial rock bottom 
Mm-hmm. And then they start really evaluating their life and thinking about the good and the bad and the ugly. And, and that's when a lot of people really start looking and searching for something more than what they had before. Maybe if they didn't know anything about God and they become receptive to that idea. But I will say that oftentimes people are kind of making deals with God. You know, mm. if you get me out of this, I'll serve you. And, you know, so I would say the conversion rate is less in a county jail than it is a prison. Because when you get to prison, you've already been convicted. You're doing your time. And for a person to accept Christ inside, it can cost you something. Either you're a non-white person. So you're being confronted with people that are Islamic that are trying to recruit you for their group. Or you've got the various gangs trying to recruit you to their group, which is a black and white um, issue, too. Um, Or if you turn to Christianity like there's no gang to fight for you or fight with you. You're kind of yeah. on your own. So, you know, in prison, when you choose Christ, that you're basically declaring it's me and you, Jesus, against everybody else in here that is my enemy. And I need you to help me make it through. Oh, that's that's inspiring. So you work, you're a partner with Emmaus Worldwide. We're going to talk about that in the next segment. But is that what Emmaus does? Go into prisons? Is that just an arm of what they do? Uh, tell us a little bit about Emmaus Worldwide. Primarily, they're a publishing company. They publish, oh, really? Yeah, they publish Bible courses. They are in over 100 countries worldwide. They have their courses translated in over 70, maybe 80 different languages. And uh, they're not just for prison ministry. They're for people learning the word of God. That's okay. their whole kind of tagline is the word to the world. You know, they're trying to get the word of God into people's hearts. And so I am a partner with them and we use their courses in prisons and jails. And we also try to connect churches with this curriculum if they want to, you know, learn the book of, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. Or if they want to talk about marriage or baptism, there's courses on this stuff. They can kind okay. of facilitate discussion and explain what the scriptures teach. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, we're going to talk to Lewis more uh, after the break here. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more specifically about prison ministry and, and what he is doing there. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us here on this Thursday afternoon. A couple different places you can find us. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Online at 1160hope.com. And as always, you can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review. We're grateful to those of you who do that. You can go to our podcast and listen to the last segment we just did with Lewis Dooley. Uh, Lewis is the author of Prison Saved My Life. He's with Set Free Ministries. He's also a partner with Emmaus Worldwide. Kind of going back, you, if you missed his story, it's fen- it's phenomenal about uh, God kind of miraculously bringing him out of prison and now sending him back in uh, to do prison ministry. And Lewis, I want to jump in right there. COVID has affected everything, right? The right. coronavirus pandemic has basically changed everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's it's probably making having a big effect on on your ministry in the prisons. Talk to us about the how the ministry has been affected by COVID. Yeah, thank you. That's a, a great question. So we have been uh, trying to carry out this vision that we believe God gave us to plant Bible studies in the maximum security units in Cook County Jail specifically. And so we were doing pretty good um, around January, February. We had two new units that we were going to open up, um, which would have gave us a total of six units in maximum security, which only scratches the surface. But 
you know, you got to crawl before you can walk. And so Mm -hmm. I was super excited. That was the answer to prayer. And then boom, March came, the pandemic hit us and everything just completely shut down, Mm -hmm. completely shut down. And so I was kind of at a loss, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know what my future was going to look like basically. Yeah. Yeah. Or is it starting to open back up at all? Or are you guys still not able to get in? Well, we also go into a juvenile jail in Warrenville, Illinois, which shut, shut down as well. But about a month ago, it opened back up. And oh, okay. so we have basically a youth group there on Sundays and then I have a mentoring group with just the boys on Wednesdays. And that's going really, really well. And that's been a that's blessing great. that they opened up. I, I did uh, undergrad college work at Wheaton College. That's where I went to college. And okay. uh, one of the most powerful things uh, in my four years at Wheaton uh, they would have ministries you could be a part of. And one of my most powerful things was not the classes I took or anything, but me and some friends were part of a ministry that went to that Warrenville juvenile uh, okay, place okay. once a month. And it was okay. life changing for me. Mm. So I would encourage people as you can get involved. How about has anything positive come out? Anything new that's come out even in the midst of this pandemic for you guys? Yeah. You know, and as I was kind of down in the dumps and feeling a little depression, you know, the Lord reminded me when I was questioning um, if this is something he wants me to continue to do or just change vocations um, totally. And he just reminded me of his faithfulness and that I should just stick with it and uh, to be creative and figure out other ways that I can do what he asked me to do. And that's where kind of taking a signal from, you know, churches, how they've had to pivot or mm-hmm. call an audible to use a football term to change the play. And to go to video. And so it was kind of cool because a couple of years ago, a warden friend of mine said, hey, would you do some videos? And I was like, I don't know how to do that. Um, I don't have time for that. So right now, no, that popped in my mind. I'm like, well, hey, I got all the time in the world now. <laughs> so by God's grace, man, somebody bought me tons of audio video equipment, brand new. So I could make videos and then make DVDs, actually send them into prisons and jails pretty much anywhere. So that can be way more far reaching doing that than just me going to one place, maybe 20 or 30 guys come. Now the whole institution would have access. So that's kind of like a new endeavor, a new thing that I've been doing. And it's been a blessing. That's awesome. Uh, So if churches out there or individuals who are hearing you going, man, I'd really love to get involved uh, in prison ministry, but I don't know how to start. I don't know what I could do. What would you say to either those individuals or to church leaders uh, who might be interested? That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. And my answer is really clean and really simple. Contact me because <laughs> I want to have a conversation with about it because there's many different facets of prison ministry that most people don't even think about. And I can get you set up, whether it's with our ministry doing some of the things we do or getting you connected with other prison ministries to do stuff that we don't do. Hmm. So um, they can connect with me. We're also having uh, a couple events coming up, a um, couple uh prison packing slash fundraising events coming up, um, one on October 23rd and one on October 29th at two different churches where we're going to be packing backpacks with toiletries for men and women coming out of prison who get out oftentimes don't have anything. We got towels, shampoo, lotion, razors, chapstick, gloves, hats, you know, stuff to help them in the wintertime, packed in a nice backpack that we are actually going to come, assemble boxes, pack those backpacks, put them in the box, write cards of encouragement, and then wrap them up in wrapping paper because it'll be an actual gift for these people. And the joy of opening a gift after who knows how long that a prisoner hasn't been able to do that is a joyous thing. 
Absolutely. You just got me thinking about something that I think you would be able to help us understand better. Uh, Talk to us about the struggle that it is for people, for men or women, when they're getting out of prison, like how hard it is, what the adjustment and kind of some of the hurdles that people face as they're getting out of prison. Yeah, that's a good question, too. It really varies, you know, depending on how long you've been in. It depends on your personality, your worldview, whether you know Christ or don't know Christ. But I would say some of the common things that everybody face faces is like resources. You know, you get out of prison and unless you have somebody that's going to take care of you, which isn't a bad thing, but isn't the greatest thing. You have to learn to develop a new routine for yourself because mm-hmm. prison is so structured and then you get out and there's really no structure. You know, now there may be some guidelines if you're on parole that you have to follow. And that is some structure, but that's not as rigid as being in an institution when you're told when to eat, when to sleep, basically when to do anything. And so you have to be disciplined to create a structure that's going to work for you. And you got things working against that Um, and and getting a job is a very difficult thing to do. It's becoming easier because more companies are being more. friendly towards uh, hiring ex-prisoners. And then sometimes it's just something as simple as where am I going to sleep? Because if you're a sex offender, like nobody's renting to you, like unless you got a lot of money, we can just buy a house. And if you buy a house in in the wrong, wrong neighborhood and people find out, I've heard stories of people picketing people's houses, neighbors Mm -hmm. picketing because they don't want that type of person in their neighborhood. So Um, those are some of the big disadvantages is jobs and where they're going to sleep at. Yeah. Yeah. So as people are listening to his talk, uh, I think in the midst of COVID, especially there's a lot of people feeling hopeless and feeling despair. They may not be in prison, but, but they're just kind of in their lives right now feeling despair. And, And I know you talked earlier about feeling that very much in, in, as you said, in your prison. So could you, uh, could you speak to those people who are listening right now who are just like, you know what? I don't feel much hope in life. I, I don't feel like I've got anything going for me. Uh, mm. Could you speak a message of hope to those people? Yeah, out there? Your, your best question yet, my brother. You know, <laughs> for me, thinking about my depressed state during COVID or really any depressed state I've ever been in before because of my situation and circumstances, the thing that's got me out every time is to look back. Hmm. It's much like those uh, memorials in the Old Testament that you would see when the Lord did something great and they put a pillar or set up some stones. Right. And this would be a place where everybody would see and remember, look what the Lord did. And so for me, it's looking back into my life and, and you can go back to the beginning of when you met Christ. Right. And see how he transformed and changed and redeemed you and purchased you back from the slave market of sin, right? And then you can continue to see over that time of life how God has blessed you, how he's kept you in his hands throughout other difficult situations. Um, And for me, that's what gets me over the hump. That's why testimonies are so powerful because you hear somebody else's um, circumstance that seems so dark and so dim, but then you hear how God intersected in their space and time and brought them through that situation. And then that gives you a glimmer of hope and say, you know what? That's the same God I serve, the same God that's been bringing me through. And doggone it, that's the same God that's going to bring me through this situation. So it's looking back at what Christ has done and continuing to look at him because he's going to continue to deliver us.
That's a great word, man. I'm glad I asked you that question. (laughs) That's a good word. Lewis, as we close here, where can people find you online, websites, uh, social media? If people want to get to connect some more, where can they find you? Yeah, the simplest one is lewisdooley.com. They can go there. There's a contact me tab. You can find out about our events coming up to pack stuff for prisoners. You don't have to bring anything. We'll have a little, it'll be social distanced. We're going to have food that's individually packed. It doesn't cost anything. You can come pack something for a person getting out of prison, eat a nice Mexican meal and hear about opportunities and things that God is doing and maybe see where he wants you to fit in. Absolutely. That's awesome. Lewis Dooley uh, joined us. He's the author of Prison Saved My Life. Lewis, uh, always enjoyable, man. Let's do it again. Thanks for joining us again today. Thank you, my brother. You take care and God bless. You too. Uh, You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. I hope you're having a great Thursday afternoon. Come back and join us tomorrow on Friday. We've got some great guests who will be joining us. It'll be our last show of the week before Ian returns, thankfully, on Monday. And uh, we're looking forward to having him back. If you've missed any of the shows over the last couple of days, there's a couple places to get them. And I'd encourage you to go check them out. Uh, just some what I have found to be really interesting uh, interviews over the last couple of days. Uh, you can find them on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Uh, you can find it uh, online at 1160hope.com. And as always, you can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, just subscribe, rate, and review. And uh, we are grateful to all of you uh, who listen to the podcast. And as I said, that's the best way. You can go back over the course of the week and you can find, you know, Dr. Philip Riken from Wheaton College, uh, Rich Schmidt today, uh, just finished up with Lewis Dooley and KJ Johnson, just some really quality people to listen to and to be challenged by. Uh, and so it, the easiest spot to do that is the podcast. And, and when you go to the podcast, as we said, uh, take a second to subscribe, rate and review. And uh, we're glad for those of you who do it. Well, I want to end the show today with an article from the Gospel Coalition. The Gospel Coalition is somewhere uh, that we take a lot of our content from. Uh, And someone who regularly writes at the Gospel Coalition, his name is Trevin Wax. He wrote uh, last week an article entitled this, The Quote, New You Isn't the Answer. The New You Isn't the Answer. He writes, when life doesn't turn out the way we want, the relentless quest for both self-acceptance and self-perfection leads some people to retreat and consider starting over. It's time for a new design. The look-in approach to life that prioritizes looking inside yourself to discover who you are, your true self, your desires, your dreams, then looking around to others to find affirmation and applause can result in failures that lead us to a redo. I call this the, quote, redesign phase. I tried to pursue my dreams and desires, but perhaps I got it wrong. Let's try it again. A new me with different dreams and different desires. So you take the effort to go back into yourself, figure out what is what it is you really want and bring out that uh, that out to the world again. You see this reinvention in the entertainment industry with stars who change up their image in order to remain relevant. In some cases, it may be that the famous person doesn't know anymore who he is, and so he tries on different personas, much like he'd give a performance, trying to figure out what fits. In other cases, perhaps the celebrity felt she was more authentic in the past, but over time uh, came to doubt 
uh, the flattery from all her fans and so adopted a new design, a different persona to see if her followers would still accept and love her. Well, you don't have to be a movie star or a celebrity to be drawn by the desire to have a new start or develop a new public image. In an age of social media where we constantly broadcast the details of our lives, it's easier and feels more natural to try to redesign yourself than ever before. And that's what many do. After going frustrated with the person we've presented to the world, we may retreat for a time or disappear from online interaction so that not so we can stay forever hidden from the eyes of others, but so we can change costumes or rework our image. We consider ways we might redesign our lives, our look, our way of being in the world so that we can be more popular or because we feel bored or unfulfilled. We used to call this a midlife crisis, but nowadays it can happen every few years. In the adolescent stages, it seems like it can happen even more frequently. See, this longing for newness, to have a new name, a new image, a new reputation, drives us deeper and deeper inside ourselves. But all the digging begins to wear us out and wear us down. Just as we felt overly flattered or overly criticized for the person we put on display before, we wonder if we will feel the same after unveiling our new self. The doubts and self-criticisms mount in our hearts And we wonder if we're really being authentic or if we're sacrificing the path to reaching our fullest potential. The endless self-analysis can make us feel like our phone or computer when there are too many apps or too many windows open. It's just best to shut down and restart. The common sense wisdom of the world says, do it again. Go through the process again, distressed and disappointed with yourself. Don't wallow in guilt and anxiety. Just take another good, long look inside to discover your deepest desires. Find a better way. The cycle continues. We emerge with a new and improved self, and we go through the same anxiety-ridden process of how others see us. See self-discovery displayed for all to see, hoping to find affirmation, failing, redesigning ourselves to become someone new, and furthering the cycle continues to leave us depressed and unsure of ourselves. We still haven't found fulfillment, purpose, or peace. We found the opposite. The world's anthem that all you need is to be you, to express yourself, to keep trying until you find yourself over and over again, fails at so many levels. You end up simply running in circles when what you need to do is to stop. Change the process completely and not start by looking inside, but by looking outside yourself, looking up to the only one who can truly make a, quote, new you, a better you, the you he created you to be. There and only there are the answers we're looking for. This is Trevin Wax. Uh, an article it's adapted from his new book, Rethink Yourself, The Power of Looking Up Before Looking In. And why did I want to end with that today? Why did we want to end with that? Here's why. Because we so often are looking for affirmation and thinking, who am I? Who do I want people to see me to be? We do that online and our social media, but we also do that with our friends and people we come in contact with. And we're constantly looking. I know I do this all the time, looking for outside affirmation. Would Hopefully people will like me if I'm X or if I do Y. And there's this insecurity that many of us wrestle with going, oh, if, if I could just have people see this, if I could just act this way. And what we need to, dis, uh, to understand and what Trevin Wax helps us to see here, hopefully, is that we don't look inside ourselves. We don't look to others for our affirmation, but we look up 
to the one who created us, to the one whose image we are created in. See, there's nothing, there's nothing that can give you greater value than what the Bible says in whose image you were created. You were created in the image of God. You're not a mistake. So many of us try to change our persona or try to act a certain way because we think we're a mistake. You're created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made, woven together in your mother's womb. You are called in Christ a child of God. Think about how much you are loved as his child, adopted into his family. And I think this it makes all the difference in the world because we search for affirmation. We search for places that we can feel affirmed and get our self-esteem. And he's saying, Trevin Wax is saying, and I think it's a great way to leave the show today. Don't look in before you first look up. Who has God made you? Who is the one who has created you with such great care? What does that mean? What does that do for your self-esteem? You, my friend, are created in the image of God a child of God in Christ, loved more than you could ever be loved, more than you could ever imagine. Allow that to give you esteem, affirmation, to allow you to stand up a little straighter rather than looking for that affirmation from others and feeling you always need to reinvent yourself and change yourself. That's what I want to leave you with today. Created in the image of God. Well, it's been a great show. If you missed any of it, go check out the podcast. Lots of great interviews today. Uh, Go check out our podcast or the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. We'll be together one more time for this week. Come join us tomorrow from 4 until 6. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 